Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore the roles of social sciences in ocean management and policy. And I have with me today Dr. James Fawcett of USC. Jim is Director of Marine Science and Policy Outreach for USC Sea Grant, and he's a professor in the Price School of Public Policy at USC. He's also Director of the Aquarium's Marine Conservation Research Institute. That is, he's a member of the Board of Directors. I guess that means you're my boss. Is that right? Oh, I so, love that. <laughs> so, I love that. <laughs> welcome to the program, Jim. Thanks, Jerry. It's always good to start at the beginning, so help us understand the the breadth of the social sciences and tell us what part of that domain you represent. Okay. Well, I, I think when we look at the social sciences, we've got to sort of drop back one step and say, well, what is a social science? Social sciences are the, the sciences that look at human behavior and they are uh, accustomed to using the tools of the natural sciences and that's why they're called social sciences. Um, they, they utilize the tools of data collection, verification, and of course analysis. And if, I, if we were to run down a list, it includes, I'm gonna put political science at the top because that's my own background, but uh, political science, sociology, sociology was the original social science looking at, at society uh, in general, society's behavior. Demography, which is a sort of a subdivision of sociology, economics, certainly, anthropology, archaeology to some extent, linguistics to some extent, psychology certainly, and then parts of uh, law, history, and education. So the, the theme in the social sciences is that they use the tools of the natural sciences to some extent, and it's data collection, verification, and analysis. And pretty broad then, pretty broad scope. Broad, broad. Truly. So it, it used to be that when we got together to talk about climate change or predictions and, and so on, it was mostly the natural scientists who were around the table. Right. Increasingly, we see that uh, we're invaded by you social scientists. <laughs> and why, why, why is that? Um, the, the real reason is the world is not as simple as a natural science model would make it. Unfortunately for natural scientists, the world's a complicated place. And I think the easiest way of understanding it is that we need the information that the natural sciences provide. But what do we do with it once we get it? That's the problem. And turning it into action is a real struggle, especially in a very complicated world, and especially with things like managing a a resource that we all own collectively, which is to say the oceans. And uh, so as a result, we need help. The natural scientists need the help of people like the social scientists. And as a matter of fact, social scientists have always been involved in it, but certainly at a lesser level than they, they appear to be these days. And we increasingly, we need more and more partnerships of the natural scientists and the natural sciences with social scientists. And I think I would even extend that to the humanities uh, Absolutely. And I want to put up a, a slide that we use a lot, and I know you have referred to. We call this the Ocean Knowledge Value Chain. 
And down there in the lower left, you have data, then moving up information, knowledge, wisdom, action. And you see that down in the data information, that's really the domain of science, including the social sciences. Right. The challenge is to drive the discussion up this chain to get to action, which is the domain of policy. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that this is an area where social sciences play a particularly important role. It's a little bit like the old myth of Sisyphus ro trying to roll the rock up, up the hill. And it keeps rolling back down before we ever get to the actions that right. we need. Right. How, do, how do you see the social sciences helping move that discussion up the value chain? Well, I think one of the things that, I, it's the, the whole issue of uh, global uh, climate change is a perfect example of all this. Um, we have the scientists on the one side saying, uh, look, the climate is changing and we think it's due, and we have good evidence that it's due to human involvement in, uh, um, in basically using the atmosphere and the oceans as a sink for, for waste products, you know, for things that change the atmosphere. But then we've got people on the other side who say that's not true. And how do we bridge the gap? The people, the scientists are very secure in their knowledge of the science. And the folks who don't believe that this is a problem are very secure in their knowledge. And then there are a bunch of people in the middle, most of us, who say, well, what are we going to do about it? The problem's so big, how can I help? And so what the social sciences do in that context is become the translators, the connectors that connect the two. And that's a very difficult job because there are all sorts of objective functions that people have. I mean, I'm trying to optimize this or that. I'm going to die soon. I don't care what happens to the environment. Or on the other hand, I just don't believe your science. Oh, okay. So how do you, how do you link those up so people can communicate with one another, understand one another? That's the real struggle. And bring that slide back up again, because I think this is a very important point. So the, the natural scientists function primarily down in the lower left-hand part of this, and they move up into the knowledge arena, which right. is information and context, the, mm -hmm. the synthesis, and so on. But the question then, as you point out, is how do we relay that information into the, the decision makers? In, and and we action? also, yes, and we also have a problem in the between the science community and the community of non-scientists, where sci uh, many scientists believe that the scientific information is justification on its own for action, and that is, and a lot of a lot of other people, including politicians, don't necessarily believe that to be true. Right. And so people say, "Well, the politicians are so stupid that they don't they don't understand this." Well, on the other hand, they have to be elected by people, and the people out who are their constituents may say, "We we don't want you to take a position." that honors the science. And, 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 and politicians have to deal with more issues than the environment. They've got all yeah. kinds of issues that exactly. we don't have to worry about. Exactly. And, and I think that, uh, go back to that slide again, please. So if the, uh, in this situation, we often say we need to make natural scientists better communicators. You're not going to convert most of us into uh, to Carl Sagan or, or someone like sure. that. I think the best way to do it is through partnerships. Partnerships with people who are expert communicators and even institutions who specialize in communicating with the public. And it's not just communication. Part of it is, and this is where the social sciences are particularly important, what drives human behavior? Right. 
And that's what the social sciences are looking at. What is it that drives human behavior? And if we can understand what drives human behavior, then we can be better translators in this process. I think that's right, yes. And so the, the, it, this is a, the social sciences in this respect are, have always been part of the problem, uh, part of the problem, <laughs> part of this, <laughs> I don't want to call them part of the problem, part of the, part of the process. Part of, yes, right. And, but you know, and the, so the other thing is in terms of partnerships, there's a role, I think, for these kinds of public informal educational institutions, aquariums, sinus centers, museums. They have to be willing, courageous enough, bold enough to take on these big issues and present the different sides. And I think in delivering those messages to the public, we always benefit by having partnerships with social scientists. And that's why we've done a number of things with you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've done a lot together. Yes. And this is, I think this is, the one, the, the thing I value particularly about the Aquarium of the Pacific, uh, as far as getting the message out, is that we, 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 there's an opportunity here for all sorts of serendipitous uh, oper uh, 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 chances to teach without people being aware that necessarily we are pitching. That, in other words, we're, 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 it's not that we're taking a position, but we're trying to educate but educate without, without the notion that somebody's got to sit in a classroom and listen to a lecture. So we can present information here in an, inf in an interesting way and, pick, and people can pick up information. The other thing I love about the aquarium is that kids love to come here, so not only can we get information out to kids, but also kids teach their parents. I know parents don't want to hear that, but, but kids, they do. kids te teach their parents a lot. And if we can educate kids about the ocean environment, then they can help educate their parents. And uh, a very large number of people go to museums every single year. In fact, the number of people who go to museums and science centers and aquariums every year exceeds the total number who go to all professional sports events combined. Wow. So there's an opportunity. I'm not sure we've seized it to the extent that we should, but there's an opportunity there. Well, that's where the Aquarium of the Pacific and, and, and other museums as well have, you, you come for the fish and you learn other things right. in the process. I think, I think the fish are the bait to get people in and then you <laughs> snooker them into learning something. They don't come here to learn. Right. But we can excite them and not just we, the, all of these kinds of institutions. And right. that's really the, the challenge. It's, right. it's not didactic learning. It's snookering, snookering them into learning something they, they never intended to learn. Yeah, and, and from the point of view of a academia, it's a wonderful opportunity to share insights that we have in, uh, to a much, much larger audience. Well, that's a point because we get a million and a half visitors a year. There are several aquariums that get more than that. Right. What's the maximum number of requests you've had for one, a reprint of one of your articles? Probably not a million and a half. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so we have a chance. Yeah. You know, it used to be the only social scientist we saw were the economists. And now, as you pointed out, we see lots of people, anthropologists uh, and sociologists, psychologists, and, uh, but we used to get exasperated. I can remember with the economists and, and that joke that if you laid all the economists end to end around the world, they wouldn't reach a conclusion. Uh, <laughs> have we gotten better than that? Yeah, I think we've gotten a lot better than that. But I think economics has it. Uh, economics is, has always had. Economics is interesting because 
it has a, a position, uh, especially in the academy and with the public, that is much like the natural sciences because they have a single, they optimize to a single function, money or utility or something like that. And they want, their models often want to reduce things down to very simple, but, uh, but uh, uh, complex, uh, derived in a complex way. But in other words, but they want to derive a simple answer, a single answer. Now, economists would say, you know, Jim, you're not right. But uh, from, a, from a point of view of somebody who uses economics a lot, we're, we're looking at, the economists are, are looking for a relatively straightforward answer. And they also want an answer that's verifiable. They want to use quantitative methods to demonstrate that this is, the, this is what's going on. And unfortunately, and this is, this is sort of the, the, the post-positivist revolution in knowledge. This is about epistemology. What, what do we know and how do we know it? Uh, even somebody as much a, a physical scientist, natural scientist, as Werner Heisenberg said, you know, if we only look at the world through the scientific method, we're going to miss a whole lot. And that's your, that was the point you made earlier about the humanities being important as well, and certainly the social sciences. If we look only through one lens, that's all we're going to see. And so um, economics, it's fascinating to hear economics today uh, claiming that there's now a branch of behavioral economics. Well, if, if the way humans use things of value is not behavioral, uh, I don't know what is. But economics has gotten a lot of attention simply because it simplifies. It's, right. it's, it, it feels more like a natural science. And in the post-positivist world, uh, there are influences on decisions that are made that can't be, that can't be quantified. Right. And, and, and so in that respect, uh, and that is the struggle that, that uh, the social sciences have had with the natural sciences. Well, you guys think you know things, but it's all by inference and it's not verifiable and oh my goodness, it's not good data. Well, you know what? Sometimes we know things and we don't know why we know them. Right, and I think the simplicity is something we all have to strive for. It has to be accurate. And the, the uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes once remarked, I wouldn't give a whit for simplicity this side of complexity, mm -hmm. but I would give my right arm for simplicity the other side of complexity. Mm -hmm. You know, and the great scientists, they are able to find simplicity. It's mm -hmm. those of us who aren't as, as great as scientists who we get uh, all wound up in all the the, the details in, in the details the details and and the details are important they are important but somebody but needs to help us translate the details into simplicity right. so that the public can understand we don't expect the public to be um, uh, sophisticated marine biologists such as yourself there's a wonderful little book the, the, the world the world of uh, or the experiments in ethics written by a social scientist mm -hmm. there's a great line in there he says that scientists often are guilty of making the familiar unfamiliar mm. and i think we we are that that's uh, because when, especially when we talk about the environment the people grew up with the environment they they know right. a lot about it and uh, we need to include more of them in these dialogues, fishermen, hunters, all right. these uh, naturalists. Let's come back to the ocean for sure. a second, since you and I are both involved with the ocean. Management of the ocean sounds like a very messy operation, and it is. 
And um, when we look ahead, I'm not sure that it's going to get any more orderly than it's been. The, the recent article in Science Magazine that we're at the, on the edge of a cliff and that we could face mass extinctions. Mm -hmm. But when you look at that, what, what impressions do you come away with? Uh, how do we back away from that cliff? It won't be through incrementalism. We've been, we've been concerned about the ocean for a long time. Mm -hmm. That was a sobering article, but there was nothing in it that surprised me. So from a social science perspective, how do we back away from a cliff when everything that, uh, as throughout our history of human beings, we've been so successful, our success has brought us to the edge of the cliff. Mm -hmm. How do we back away from it? Well, I think, I, I think it, uh, from a scientific point of view, it may be interesting to pose uh, uh, statements like that in scientific literature. But it sort of reminds me of the situation with uh, Al Gore's film. If you tell everybody, uh, oh my God, the world's coming to an end, it's a disaster, et cetera, et cetera, then a lot of people are just going to throw up their hands and say, well, what can I do about it? So in many ways, scaring the public is not a way of motivating them. And so as a result, what we have to do from the social science point of view is explain what you can do as an individual, what groups can do as individuals, and then educate people so that they can influence their elected officials. They are your representatives, after all. They're the ones making the decisions on your behalf. I don't think there's anything wrong with scaring them as long as you show them a way out to a positive Agreed. future. It's like the, the, uh, the arc of a, of a good the, of myth that Joseph Campbell pointed out. You can drag me into the depths of despair as long as you show me a path to a better future. Right. And I think that's what we haven't right. done. Right, and that is well. what has not been done. And, um, and also, uh, think, about, uh, think about air quality. And think about the, the uh, folks uh, uh, that are elected to Congress and represent states where coal, coal mining employs lots and lots of people. They aren't just voluntarily going to easily say, oh, okay, I'll give up coal mining and I'll go do something else. So we've got to find a way to change that if we want coal to, to cease to be used as a power source or as a fuel in the United States. No, I certainly agree. Now, we talked a little bit about some parts of the NGO community with yeah. science museums and aquariums, but the broader NGO community, do um, you have any thoughts on how we can in engage part other parts of the NGO community in having us look at the future in, in different ways? Because we, we tend to... to adopt these positions. We're opposed to, to A or B or C. Right. We, I think we need to turn these problems on their head and make them opportunities. Single purpose, uh, and I, I sort of draw a distinction, perhaps between um, think tanks and single purpose NGOs. NGOs um, are obviously important in governance. What they do is they, they, uh, uh, they aggregate the opinions of simil similarly minded people. But if we're gonna act on uh, recommendations of NGOs, we have to be very careful about where the NGO is coming from. What is their object? What is their real objective here? I am very suspicious of NGOs that are speaking for the wi the, uh, the wider humanity. 
Um, what is it that what, what's what is it that you're really trying to fix here? What is it that's wrong, etc.? One of the problems with NGOs is in order to raise money, in order to keep the dues-paying members uh, coming in, they got to have a problem. That's frequently uh, that's frequently an issue. Um, John Stuart Mill in his essay on liberty talks about how we we've, we've got to we've got to include all sorts of ideas in the mix, but. Uh, because it's important to include ideas that even we think are uh, from from uh, folks way out on the fringe, but then we have to we have to let that be in the mix, and we have to evaluate who's who's talking that point, and where are they coming from, what's their real objective in the process, and that's a tricky pro that that's a tricky business. That's hard to do. Uh, some NGOs. Uh, are so uh, adamant about their own position that really they do a disservice to the public at large. And so we have to be very careful about listening to them. Uh, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to them. It just means know where they're coming from. But I think if, if entertaining all of the ideas, no matter how extreme they are. And I think the challenge is to keep ideas in play and try to refine them. Too often, uh, ideas that we look upon them as being dangerous and uh, the sport is let's kill those ideas as quickly as right. possible because they're dangerous. Right. We should keep them in play and see if there's something there that we really need to do. Right. And sometimes, and I can speak as a former public official uh, who has attended hundreds of public hearings, uh, very often there will be um, a what, what uh, uh, may appear to be a crank who always wants to uh, deliver an opinion at a public meeting. And you know what? Sometimes the cranks have good ideas. You have to listen. <laughs> you have to listen, right. Yeah. Well, Jim, we're coming near the end of our time. Do you have a final thought that uh, you would like to give to our, our viewers about the importance of social sciences? I think, it's, I think it's important, to again, to recognize that the social sciences have always been part of the mix and that at this point, when we're, there is such complexity over environmental issues and ocean issues, it's even more important that they be in the mix as translators and connectors between the larger public and the science community. And I'm, I'm delighted to at least have it uh, acknowledged by the AOP here that, that the social sciences are a part of the mix. A very important part. You know, Thank recently, you. <laughs> the, the National Research Council wrote a report about the what they called convergence, bringing together the disciplines, uh, the natural sciences, uh, the social sciences, the arts and the humanities, and that's where we're going to make the most progress, if yeah. we can have these rich, deep conversations. And be willing to talk across disciplinary boundaries. That's right, talk, yeah, exactly, yes. Well, I want to thank Jim Fawcett for joining me today on this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. I hope you'll join us next month. And until then, I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations. Mm -hmm.